everyone and welcome back to the Burley Fisher podcast. We're very pleased to be back with you after a quite extended hiatus. I think the last episode we released was the 25th of May 2022, so we've been away for a long time, but we're very pleased to be back. I am your host, Dan Fuller, uh, tuning in from the green glens of Antrim in Northern Ireland, and I'm joined by the prima donna of Kingsland Road, uh, Mr Samuel Fisher. Thank you. Back, back with the epithets. Um, <laughs> good, good to be speaking to you, Dan. Glad to be back in the pod. It's lovely. Uh, it's nice to touch base with HQ, as it were. So, yeah, we're back and we're going to be releasing some archival stuff to begin with. We are. So we, we're, we still have um, a kind of dragon's horde of excellent uh, recordings from our festival that we held in we 2021, do, yeah. which we haven't released yet. Um, so we're going to be delighted to be sharing those with you with a view to looking forward, really, because we are holding our next literary festival in September of this year, September 2023. Um, and it's going to be held this time over four days in the same, right, in, mostly in the same venue in St. Peter's and Beauvoir. It's going to be bigger, bolder, brassier, brighter, boozier, booksier. Uh, it's, it's just going to be all top. The bees, trust. All the bees. Um, <laughs> all the bees. All the bees. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll give more news um, of that yeah, in the coming yeah, weeks. And we're very excited to share with you what we've got coming up. But before all that, we're very excited to be releasing another little thing from the archive, which is a recording made by our sometime guest host, Habib William Purbeck, with Dr. Gerald Horn, who is the Moores Professor of uh, African American Studies and History at the University of Houston. Uh, he is a Marxist historian who writes about the intersection of white supremacy, race, ideology and all kinds of other stuff. He talks about a, a boxing book, a history of boxing that he wrote in the podcast, which is fascinating. And it's just a real pleasure to uh, hear big brains colliding on the airwaves. <laughs> yeah, so I think without further ado, we'll pass over to Habib Kerbeck and Professor Horn and say farewell for me, Daniel Fuller and... Farewell from me, Samuel Fisher. <laughs> Enjoy the interview. So we're speaking with uh, Professor Gerald Horn, the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, and the book The Bittersweet Science, which is about boxing, which we'll, we'll, we'll discuss a little later. But we'll start off, Professor Horn, if you have a moment, uh, if you don't mind, with a few questions about The Dawning of the Apocalypse. One of the first sort of animating concepts there, sort of, I, in reading the book, there were two sort of overarching concepts that came uh, to the fore. And of course, one is in the subtitle, this notion of the long 16th century. Um, could you maybe un un unpack that idea a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar with the, the notion of the long 16th century? What's the time period that you're uh, attributing to the long 16th century and, and what made it the 16th century, um, so to speak? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Second of all, your listeners should know that uh, I, in a sense, wrote this book for a U.S. audience, although obviously uh, anyone <laughs> can partake of what I'd laid out. And so when I speak of the long 16th century, I'm speaking of the period from 1492, whose importance I'm sure I do not have to explain, to 1607. That's where the U.S. audience comes in. Uh, that is to say, uh, the English invasion of what they call Virginia, which kickstarts the process that leads ultimately to the formation of the nation now known as the United States of America. That's point number one in terms of the long 16th century. Uh, another take on the long 16th century uh, could begin with 1453. Uh, that is to say, uh, when Islamist forces uh, prevail in Constantinople, now Istanbul, which ignites a, a chain of events, uh, not only in terms of the Christians on the Western sector of Europe, a feeling that the Muslims are on the march, and perhaps almost defensively, uh, they begin to march westward uh, to the Americas, where, as you know, in 1492, 1493, uh, they bump into uh, the Americas. Or alternatively, uh, you can see the long 16th century as actually preceding 1453, because a premise of this book is 
exploring the religious roots of what we refer to as race. Uh, that is to say that the concept of race as we understand it today, in many ways, if you began to trace it, uh, you could trace it back to the Crusades uh, about a, a millennium ago and the so-called othering of the uh, Muslims in what the Christians call the Holy Land and how that process <laughs> was transferred to uh, other groups that were othered, for example, people of African descent, such as myself. And then this in turn, if I can continue this thread, uh, feeds into the long 16th century as well. Because as you know from the book, I posit that a turning point comes in 1517 with the rise of Martin Luther and his secession from Catholicism to a degree. Some might even say a secession from Christianity, but I won't go there. And the formation of what was then the Protestant sect, but I guess it's inappropriate to refer to it as a sect today, and how it takes London by storm. Your audience, I'm sure, is familiar with what happens uh, in the 1530s. And this is taking place uh, in the context of this colonial feast uh, ignited by the Iberian Catholics, the Spanish and the Portuguese. And London ultimately wants to uh, get in on the feast. And what happens uh, to telescope uh, a very lengthy and elaborate arg our argument <laughs> is that the Protestants in some ways, what happens is that they bury the hatchet, as they say in North America. Uh, they bury the hatchet with those who they've been squabbling with uh, in the British Isles. Uh, to a degree, the Scots and the Irish, and of course we know that the hatchet was not buried altogether, uh, but it was buried sufficiently for uh, London to embark on its own settler colonial project in the 1580s in what they referred to as North Carolina, which was a class collaborationist project. And those three words, it seems to me, is part of the key to understanding today's United States of America. That is to say, this initial project in what they called North Carolina involved a multi-class array sponsored by those at the top of the economic pyramid. Ultimately, uh, that project would lead to the dispossession of the indigenous population and the mass enslavement of Africans with the settlers sharing the booty. And what happens is that, once again, this takes place in a context, as you know, of religious contestation uh, in what we refer to as the British Isles. Uh, as a matter of fact, more than once, uh, I've drawn a line from the point that in the sixth, 16th century, uh, there is a transition from Catholics burning Protestants at the stake to the late 19th century in North America, where there's settler progeny in what is now the United States of America, you saw Protestants and Catholics linking hands, oftentimes, in fact, with Jewish Americans as well, to burn Africans at the stake, basically. And therein, you see this transition from religion to race, uh, <clears throat> from one religious sect torching, immolating another religious sect to these religious sects joining hands and then torching my ancestors. Now, uh, that is an executive summary of the argument put forward in the book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. A very good and succinct summation of the general premise of the, of the time period. What I'm also interested you touched on in your answer um, is this notion of how uh, race and religion 
become intertwined and then one supplants the other. And of course, in the book you mention basically the construction of what we think of as modern racism and how this has happened hand in hand with modernity in, a, in, uh, in, the, in the, the time period that you're writing about. And I was wondering if you could maybe bring in, uh, maybe give a, a sense of some of how this process took place and of course how, how you see it constructed intellectually, this notion of a race and religion coming to at one, at one time reinforce each other, but of course then race becoming a kind of surrogate religion or a kind of, uh, a kind of identity forming concept that animates the post long 16th century period up to the present. Well, what's interesting, you notice that in my last comment, uh, I brought in the uh, Jewish population. And as I say in the book, uh, you see London expelling its Jewish population by the end of the 13th century. And yet, by the 1500s, by the 16th century, you see Protestant London under siege by the Catholics. And of course, you need only look at 1588 when the Iberian Catholics come within a, a whisker of taking over what is called the British Isles. And so you see London moving, perhaps even in a defensive manner, to embrace the Jewish population that is fleeing from the Iberian Peninsula. Because as you know, 1492 not only marks the year when Columbus sails the ocean blue, you also see that uh, it marks the penultimate stage of the Catholics uh, ousting the Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula, which culminates about a century later with the attempt to expel them altogether. And as well, uh, this is coming at the early stages of the so-called Inquisition, uh, whereby those who were Jewish in particular had to profess Catholicism or be tortured or die, basically. Uh, torture or be, be tortured or executed. And so many of these Jewish Iberians, many of them flee to Turkey, where their descendants continue to reside. Many of them flee to Amsterdam, Rotterdam. Many of them flee to London. Uh, and what's interesting there is that uh, given the uh, persecution uh, of the Jewish population in throughout Western Europe, for hundreds of years, and, and even following 1492, uh, even following uh, 1600, you, you see a number of Jewish migrants come into Africa, for example, and many of them are cartographers and develop some of the early maps that are then utilized by the enslavers Speaking of the enslavers, I also point to 1591 as a turning point in this book. That marks the successful attempt by Morocco to destabilize the Songhai Empire to the south. And what's interesting is that uh, they are assisted by London uh, in this effort. And that 1591 episode uh, has uh, knock-on effects, ricocheting effects throughout the continent, softening up a, a good deal of the continent for the onrushing African slave trade. And therein, you begin to see the African slave trade uh, take off. Now, I, I won't digress and talk about the precursors to the African slave trade. Uh, part of it's in the book. Part of it's in another book uh, I'll be uh, publishing soon. But in any case, um, this leads to uh, untold wealth, needless to say. In my companion volume on the 17th century, I talk about the confluence of, the, of London starting the Royal African Company, an attempt to systematize the African slave trade circa 1672, and how with the so-called glorious revolution of 1688, uh, among other things, you see the merchants were able to elbow their way in 
to this lucrative trade whereby you can invest $1 and receive $1,700 back, uh, there are those today who would sell their firstborn child for a 1,700% profit, let alone some African they don't know. And uh, this in turn leads to a clipping of the wings uh, on the monarch, uh, the rise of a, a certain kind of bourgeois democracy, uh, which of course then reaches a, a new stage in North America in the following century. But this, this development of the African slave trade has many spinoff effects. Uh, number one, uh, it, it kickstarts or it helps to accelerate the uh, shipbuilding industry because you need ships to transport the Africans, you need ships to transport settlers uh, to North America. And then of course, that develops a working class as well to build the ships who receive wages, which then uh, feeds uh, allied industries, uh, for example. And so it creates what the merchants would call a virtuous circle of wealth mongering and wealth producing, production. Of course, from the point of view of the victims, it's a circle devoid of virtue. And <laughs> you know, July 4th is the new US national holiday right now. And of course I've been arguing in, a, in another volume that the alleged progressive aspects of 1776 have been wildly overstated. I mean, it's no accident, as historians like to say, that the Africans by and large did not support the slave-owning rebels led by George Washington in their attempt to oust London. Now, what's interesting, if you go back to my comment from a few moments ago, where I suggested that class collaborationist project were three words that unlock the key to the United States of America. Now, what's interesting about the US left <laughs> is that the US left, they pride themselves supposedly on their class analysis. That's supposed to be their calling card, their class analysis. And anything else, identity politics. <laughs> and yet, when it comes to analyzing the United States, they throw class analysis out the window. I mean, here you have an oppressed class of Africans. They're slaves, they work for free. They're workers, they just don't get paid. And that demands a class analysis. They do not necessarily support, they do not engage in class collaboration with their slave owners led by George Washington. So in order to make the US story of being progressive make sense, the US left imputes class collaboration implicitly to the enslaved African class so they can make the whole story make sense. Uh, because it, since there, you know, there are more black people in the United States than there are people in Canada, for example, 45 million as opposed to 38 million in Canada. And so if you have this national story, <laughs> 45 million people will say, wait a minute, this story doesn't make sense. So, so, so then the, the left engages in the, the, this sort of uh, trickery or tricknology, as used to be said, whereby they impute class collaboration to the Africans so they can make the story make sense. Even though we know that a few decades later during the War of 1812, when you had another face-off between London and the rebels, or the once rebels, now leaders of the United States, once again, when the Redcoats invade Washington in 1814, they're joined by the US black population who helped to plunder the White House and then get on British ships and sail to Trinidad and Tobago where their descendants continue to reside. Now, th these patriotic US leftists, when you start raising, raising these points, they say, oh, you're an apologist for the British Empire. Well, okay, I guess when the North Atlantic countries join an alliance with Stalin in 1941, they were apologists for Stalinism. I mean, the whole thing makes no sense. It gets me angry just thinking about it because now we're on the verge of fascism in this country which is gonna spread like an oil spill throughout the rest of the world. And much of it has to do with a faulty analysis. 
a faulty analysis of social forces, political forces, etc., which inevitably leads one over the cliff. It does. It is a very, you know, very dangerous moment in global history, and I think you're you're touching on some of the most, you know, critical elements of the book. The why I thought it was such an urgent read for the moment. Um, one of the things that I think it does reveal that's also, um, you know, quite it may be somewhat downplayed in other areas is is the way that. Like there are moments of hinge, like hinge moments in history where it could have been different, and you highlight in particular several: the Battle of El Casar, um, the Battle of mm-hmm. Lepanto, and of course, uh, obviously the mm-hmm. 1588 sinking of the Spanish Armada off uh, in, this, in the Channel. And you know, I, I think you know these are yeah these are moments that obviously in, in Britain people are rather familiar with the sinking of the Armada, but the Battle of Lepanto is rather submerged psychologically. The Battle of El Casar is is virtually unknown, I think, in Britain certainly, and I'm certain in America it's not quite well known either. And I'm, I was wondering if you could, you know, in terms, as you say, these, you know, we are kind of a hinge now, uh, you know, the, the, the things that these, you know, the, the, basically the historical forces that these moments unleashed, um, if you could take us into some of them, uh, these, these hinge points, and maybe if you could draw some parallels with the present moment, are there, are there these hinge points that you would want to point to now that you think uh, resonate with some of the ones that you illuminate in the book? Oh, certainly now. There are so many hitch moments we could spend the rest of the hour talking about them. I mean, I, I, I think of the just concluded meeting of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in Spain, where they add uh, China to their list of potential antagonists, uh, joined with Russia, for example. So you have the development of these two blocks and what, how and where this is going to eventuate, it's unclear right now. But obviously, it's going to lead to increased militarization. You see the United States is about to open a military base in Poland, um, that there is going to be added pressure on Kaliningrad, the Russian city separated from the mainland of Russia, abutting Poland and Lithuania. You'll probably see conflict between Russia and Canada at the top of the world in the Arctic Circle. One of the reasons why Canada is spending more on the military. So we're at one of these hinge moments, and I wish I could predict how this would eventuate. Uh, but uh, hopefully, speaking metaphorically, uh, I think I'll have to wait to sift through the ashes. Well, it's a historian's uh, role in some ways. Um, but um, in, in, and in so in, in returning to the book a little bit, one of the things that I really um, was struck by was how often you're able to identify these individuals who sort of embody certain elements of these trends in their time. Incipient capitalism, obviously, um, obviously the slave uh, you know, uh, class collaboration,ism all, all these sort of trends. You, you often find a character who can take us through some of that. And I was wondering, you know, for readers, maybe if you could uh, just discuss a little bit some of the people that really came to mind for me in the book. Of course, were Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, Jacques de Suarez, and Thomas Stukely. These are like uh, kind of three heads in in the narrative that I really kind of felt were you know, indicative of certain wider trends that you uh, described. And maybe if you'd speak a little bit about how these figures played a role in, in the formation of the this, this time period and the psychology and how they embodied it a little bit. I, I don't think uh, readers might necessarily be so familiar with the latter two that probably will know Raleigh, but like if you could take us into how some of these characters, some of these individuals channel some of these historical trends. Well, first of all, I, I didn't really address fully your previous question. And, and, and I would say that you mentioned 1588, the Spanish Armada as a hinge moment. Uh, you mentioned uh, Lepanto. And uh, I'm very much interested in that because, as I suggested, first of all, Lepanto basically was a stinging defeat for the Ottomans. Maybe as shorthand, I'll say the Muslims, who had seemingly been on the march since 1453. Um, And they lost a bit of their swagger uh, after the Holy League and the so-called Christian forces, particularly the Catholic forces, I should say, uh, ganged up on them. And uh, you could draw a straight line from Lepanto uh, through the end of World War I, uh, where you basically see the uh, breakup uh, of the Ottoman Empire, which then leaves chaos in its wake, which you see not least in historic Palestine today. And then uh, I think you mentioned Alcazar uh, as well, um, which is a stinging defeat for Portugal. Uh, 
In some ways, Portugal is a pioneering country, but in some ways it seeks to punch above its weight and gets hammered down uh, as a result, hammered down not least by the uh, North Africans. And with Portugal being hammered down, uh, that creates more room at the top for the rise of London. And in any case, there'd always been a kind of relationship between London and Lisbon based upon their uh, mutual shifting antagonism with Spain. And in, in some ways, uh, Portugal, which during that same period is able to establish a foothold in Southwest Africa and Angola in particular, uh, it's no accident that Angola begins to be a happy hunting ground for English, then British, then US enslavers uh, from about 1575 up through, say, the end of the US Civil War, circa 1865. Now, with regard to some of these figures, uh, let me mention Amador, um, who is an African uh, from a land off the coast of Western Africa, an island off the coast of Western Africa. And so what happens, and I'm, I'm sure alert listeners, th this question might have occurred to them, uh, which is, why not have plantations on, Af on African soil? I mean, wh why drag these people across the Atlantic to Brazil and North America? And of course, that had occurred <laughs> to, to the enslavers, but they did not bargain on the leadership and the militancy embodied in Amador, who led successful revolts against this effort to enslave Africans on their own soil, which then has transformative effect in terms of then accelerating the process whereby Africans are taken across the Atlantic. Now, with regard to these, some of these British figures, or English figures, I should say, uh, you'll have to refresh my recollection. Since I wrote that book, I've moved on to these other projects, and so... Uh, well, of course, I, Stukely is kind of a, a figure who turns up fighting for one side, fighting another side in the religious conflict, uh, serving multiple masters, so to speak, in Europe. Uh, obviously, Jacques Suarez, the uh, French pirate, uh, who basically burns Havana, Walter Raleigh, of course, uh, you know, the figure of espionage and uh, basically intrigue on the part of the Queen Elizabeth for a period of time, and then, of course, who is uh, ultimately uh, laid low by his own within palace intrigues within the country. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what I'm interested in in regard to how these figures function, it's, uh, it's more how they illuminate other trends, how they, um, you know, how they kind of serve as kind of signifiers for choices people were making during those periods of time. And I was wondering if you could maybe just take us into well, a little bit of the thinking about it, you know? Well, I, I think what, what's happening, you know, it's all, <laughs> as should be obvious, uh, you know, looking back, uh, you could always read back today into the past and say, well, sure, people were going to ally with London because they had an inkling that the British Empire would uh, stalk the planet, uh, colitis bestriding the globe. But obviously, uh, I think that's a bit of blinkered thinking. As a matter of fact, uh, a question that might have been posed in the 16th century in particular was how pretentious it was for this minor monarchy on the fringes of Europe to begin to think that it could play in the big leagues. It could play in the Premier League uh, with Spain, for example, particularly given the rancorous internal disputes with the Irish and with the Scots. As a matter of fact, more than once in, in this uh, book, I asked the question that I'm not sure has an answer, which is, was the rancorous tensions between the English, the Irish, and the Scots, was that a precondition for the uprooting of Africans and indigenous in the Americas, for example? In other words, 
was London able to develop a, a kind of nascent military industrial complex developing weapons that then become very useful in North America and that they hone those weapons against the English and the Irish in particular? Uh, or could you make the alternative argument, which is that uh, London uh, in its conflicts with the indigenous population of North America and the Africans develops weapons that then could be used against their internal foes, uh, the Irish and the Africans, excuse me, the Irish and the Scots in particular. And alternatively, th there's the question that I pose, I, I think I posed this, in one of my books, I posed the question of, well, a number of questions. One, uh, the process whereby the Irish and the Scots or welcome to the colonial feast. It's no secret <laughs> that in terms of the marauders in North America, not to mention Australia, uh, many of them are of Irish and Scottish descent. And then alternatively, you can make the argument that as the British empire uh, comes to a halt, uh, or comes to a kind of halt, I should say, uh, post-1945, that inevitably the Scots, for example, would say, well, wait a minute, what are, what are we getting out of this deal <laughs> with, with London? I think we could cut a better deal with Brussels, actually. And uh, Let's get out of this relationship. This is a dysfunctional relationship, you know, just like a bad marriage. Indeed, this is actually a question, it leads directly to a question I was going to ask about the proto-colonialism within Ireland by Britain and, of course, uh, the old alliance between you know, Scotland and, and continental Europe uh, preceding the period that which you describe in, in, the, in uh, the dawning of the apocalypse. And, you know, I mean, you are kind of doing it already, but I was wondering if, you know, because we are now currently in Britain, we're there are, there's a crisis in Northern Ireland in relationship to the Brexit right. agreement. And, of course, there's just been announced this week by Nicola Sturgeon, the uh, right. First Minister of Scotland, the, she's going to pursue another um, independence referendum. And I was just, you know, I was wondering if you, you know, if you would want to, you know, maybe further some of the comments you were, you were making about some of the, the ways that some of these things that preceded the high colonial period of Great Britain as if the empire advanced, how these things were never necessarily resolved. And we're now kind of seeing them return in some form in contemporary Britain, you know, I mean, this pre-colonial, pre-long 16th century period is maybe, feels in some ways more proximal, perhaps, than the interceding centuries in, in Britain. I was, I was, you know, the ways that history does come back uh, are always, you know, kind of fascinating, but like, ultimately, there is no resolution to these questions, are there? They, they just sort of, they hang around. Well, you, you also see a similar process in, in Spain. Uh, with regard to the Catalan question. Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say, it's no accident, as historians like to say, that Catalan nationalism begins to bubble to the surface as the Spanish Empire heads for the dustbin of history. <laughs> and that, uh, I, I think of this in particular, it's very interesting, that this United States of America. So, so you have a, a Basque population in the United States of America. Point number one. Point number two, as you probably know, uh, those with so-called Spanish surnames uh, are not oftentimes treated as first-class citizens, to put it mildly. However, boss do not necessarily have Spanish surnames, and so they can more easily integrate into the so-called white population and rise higher <laughs> than, than they would in their homeland, uh, for example. Speaking of whiteness, this is a subject I would be delinquent if I did not raise, because I think this is, this is part of the process that accompanies settler colonialism and colonialism writ large and capitalism. Because what happens is that the Spanish are privileging religion in Cuba in colonial Cuba in the 1500s, you could be a conquistador, a conqueror, officially, if you profess Catholicism. Now, obviously, that did not bar the Spanish from enslaving Africans. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I've drawn an analogy between uh, what the Spanish Empire was doing in the 1500s in the United States today, because in the United States today, of course, you can have uh, black people rise to many high levels 
as long as they're reactionary, of course, like Clarence Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court. And then you have these prison labor camps that are filled to the brim with black people, which are the equivalent of, of slave labor camps of, of old, producing products, for example, for the open market. So what's interesting is that London, the scrappy underdog, is not able to privilege Protestantism as a qualifier for settlement. And I would say improvisationally, uh, they move towards pan-Europeanism. Uh, that is to say, initially incorporating uh, even Irish Catholics. I mean, for example, if, if you look at this, the settlement of Maryland, of course, named after Mary, as you may have gathered, um, in the 1600s, there were Catholics involved in that settlement project from the inception. Spain would never have allowed Protestants to be involved in the settlement project at that highest level because of their privileging of Catholicism. In fact, I'm speaking to you from Texas. And as you probably know, uh, Texas used to be part of Mexico. And then you had these uh, freebooters, these Anglo freebooters and pirates like Stephen F. Austin and Sam Houston, who then bequeathed their names to the largest cities. When they decided to establish these settlements in Texas, they had to nominally profess Catholicism, even though they were not Catholics, actually. They, they were faking to a certain degree. And so then you see the, the remit expand in the United States of America. Uh, those who had been warring on the shores of Europe, uh, Britain versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian. I mean, the list is endless. All of a sudden, <laughs> when they cross the Atlantic, they, they take on this new identity, this identity of whiteness. I mean, the, these left-wing people in, the, in this country, most of whom, of course, are melanin deficient, these, these Euro-American leftists, that whole project, that whole process, it, it, it has not captured their imagination. They just, they, they take it for granted, that this whole notion of whiteness. I mean, they, they act like it's, like it's a term like homo sapien, for example. It's a, it's a normalized concept. When it's a construction, it's a fabrication. It's a tool for oppression. I guess they feel embarrassed to, to count themselves in a category that has been a tool for oppression, but there it is. And so what happens is that this whiteness project then, of course, morphs into white supremacy. Uh, it becomes a tool for the dispossession of the Native Americans. In my current book on Texas, I talk about the Cherokee an indigenous population of the north, southeast quadrant of the United States, they tried to assimilate. They became Christians. They adopted the dress of the settlers. They became slave owners. They developed an alphabet, produced newspapers, etc. It didn't save them. They were still expelled. <laughs> and Europeans fresh off the boat, I, I call it a roughhouse version of Airbnb, <laughs> moved into their houses because <laughs> they were ousted basically. And then they embarked on what is called the Trail of Tears to what is now Oklahoma. It was supposed to be Indian territory. But of course, as usual, the settlers didn't keep their promise. And where their descendants continued to reside. And I should mention one more point before I turn the microphone back to you, which is that this, this is a typical settler dispute in North America. Whereas the liberals and the moderates they thought the Native Americans should be put on reservations, the equivalent of South African Bantustans, for example, where the hardliners, the real men with hair on their chest, they thought they should be liquidated, exterminated. And of course, at least in Texas, the hardliners won out. And so 200 years ago, where I'm sitting now, used to be teeming with Native Americans. Now they're almost all gone. And nobody even asked about them. I mean, that's seen as a, as a normalized process, and then they wonder why we're on the verge of fascism. And this is uh, this is actually yeah, uh, leading to another question that I did I did want to ask, and it is specifically about what you refer to as the whiteness project. Um, this notion of 
you know, obviously, particularly now, again, to draw these parallels to the present day, there's, of course, a, what's called a white nationalist movement in the United States. But of course, you know, white identity, ha it has no nation. It's not, a, it's not an ethnic group identity. It's a power identity. And yeah, I think showing the, the construction of this identity is an extremely valuable uh, uh, historical lineage to trace. And I was wondering, you know, you've, you've touched on some of it, but what, you know, could you talk a little bit about what, what that construction process was like? What, what, you know, what, because obviously, as you say, you know, like people were admitted to the power identity, you know, initially you might not be white and then you get white when you, uh, you know, you assume a certain status in society, a certain role or willingness to undertake certain activities, slaveholding, uh, this, this sort of thing, assertions of power on, on the part of the state. Could you talk, take us into that process a little bit to illuminate how that construction took place? Because you know the idea of, of a nationalism, you know, is now perhaps emergent, but of course has no historical root. Well, particularly in my Texas book, and mm -hmm. titled the Texas book, by the way, which just came out a few weeks ago, is the Counter Revolution of 1836. What I find striking is that those who were defined as white, who did not want to go along with the project, be it extermination of Native Americans, be it mass enslavement of Africans, they too were liquidated, <laughs> you see. And that creates a mighty incentive, to put it mildly, to go along with the project. Because you either go along with the project or you're killed. I mean, if you look at the cover of my book, you'll see uh, there's a picture of a mass hanging of, uh, of Euro-Americans who were objecting to the project. And second of all, there are many bumps in the road with regard to being admitted into the hollowed halls of whiteness. I mean, if you look at the Jewish population, for example, um, certainly, I think it's fair to say that Generally speaking, they fared better in the settlements than they did in Europe, which I think leads to many illusions. It, it, it leads to this illusion about how the United States is this great leap forward for humanity because the Jewish population fares better in North America and in the Caribbean than it does in Europe. Well, I mean, what a misreading. I mean, it's basically because, you know, these settlers, they needed warm bodies to confront these indigenous populations and these enslaved Africans. And what's interesting as well, in terms of the bumps on, on the road, one of the projects, one of my research projects that I'm involved in now, deals with the, um, the fact that you may be familiar with the Marine Hymn of the U.S. Marines from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. The shores of Tripoli refers to the fact that U.S. sailors, and this has been happening actually with English sailors before then, when they're sailing south to plunder Africa, they could be snatched in Algiers, for example, and then sold into the slave markets of Turkey. And so that was happening for centuries. And so what's interesting about the United States is that Early on, they're blaming the Jewish population of Algiers and of North Africa in general for this entire process, interestingly enough. This, similarly, with regard to the Irish Catholic population, uh, there, it's no secret that uh, many Irish Catholics become quite wealthy uh, in this country, uh, but even those who had fled uh, the famine of uh, 160, 170 years ago in Ireland. Uh, but it's also true that uh, there's sharp conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics up to and including the torching of convents, for example, and scurrilous propaganda about uh, Catholics and Irish Catholics in particular. Having said that, it's also true that if you look at some of the most serious pogroms against black people, such as the 1863 massacres in New York City, at the tip of the spear are Irish Catholics, who were some, you know, I guess they're sort of 
proving how they could be useful <laughs> for this project. And so they're killing, they're killing Negroes, for example. Or if you look at the New World religions, like Mormonism, the Church of Latter-day Saints, which develops, well, I shouldn't say develops in Utah, it, it, it takes off in Utah because it develops in the U.S. Northeast, and they keep getting chased west until they move into Utah, which they thought was Mexican territory, but of course the United States eventually takes over. And then a war erupts between the Mormons and the United States government. And the Mormons are, are really not doing badly in terms of this war. And of course, one of, the, one of the issues at stake is the Mormons' devotion to polygamy, for example, which still continues on an underground level in certain parts of Utah and the U.S. Southwest. But what's interesting is it's, it's, it's a typical U.S. story is that eventually the Mormons, they kiss and make up <laughs> with the United States and become some of the most patriotic uh, U.S. chauvinists. Uh, to the point now, interestingly enough, the USCIA is disproportionately populated by Mormons because the Mormons are heavy into conversions as a youth. Mitt Romney, the preeminent Mormon who ran for president, now a U.S. senator, he spoke French, but of course he couldn't mention that because France wasn't very popular at the time. Because he went on missions abroad where he was trying to convert people into Mormonism. And so because of their facility and language, they've been, become very useful to the CIA, to the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. It's a typical story of, of this process of whiteness, whiteness, white supremacy, whereby folks, Jewish, Irish, Catholic, Mormon, initially they're targeted. However, if we go into this next stage, as a matter of fact, I'm giving a talk on July 4th, the national holiday, where one of the theses I'm going to put forward is that if you look at the stages of the United States, from slavery to Jim Crow or U.S. apartheid, and then beginning in the 1950s, you have a, a so-called U.S. spring with a brief interregnum, mostly based upon pressure from the socialist camp and from national liberation movements allied to it, which helps to lead to an erosion of Jim Crow. But now, moving to the next logical phase, which is fascism, um, in which case all of these bargains that I've just enumerated with Jewish people, uh, Irish Catholics, Mormons, they're up for renegotiation. That's the thing in, in this country. It, it's difficult to get a, a, a final deal, a final bargain. Everything comes up for renegotiation with these reactionaries in this country. Certainly a frightening proposition uh, going into an election year uh, in the U.S. Um, but um, I think maybe we'll, we'll switch gears from uh, from that uh, on that note and maybe discuss a little bit about Bittersweet Science because it's also an equally fascinating yeah. book and, and came out uh, quite recently as well. Um, just to kind of maybe take us into a little bit, obviously, just for re, uh, for listeners, it's a, a book about many of the you know, the structures around boxing, corruption, racism, anti-Semitism, various forms of discrimination and uh, corruption that characterize the world of boxing. But, uh, you know, obviously, as a historian of, of race and uh, obviously in, of America, boxing plays a big role. But what was it that actually interested you in, in addressing it at a book length uh, topic? What, are, you a fan, are you a boxing fan yourself or is it a situation where it's, oh, OK, great. Well, actually, I had wanted to do a sports book, and I thought my original, my original idea was to get do a book on baseball, mm. but I couldn't find an opening. Uh, although I, I haven't ruled out uh, doing that again, going returning to that topic, and so I sort of stumbled into this boxing project after I found out that there are these amazing boxing archives in the United States. They're all over the country. Uh, in Brooklyn, New York, for example, if you look at my footnotes, you, you'll see many references uh, to that archive. And then you have boxing was a regulated sport. The state intervened because of the violence and, and the corruption. So you have these athletic commissions. If you look at my footnotes, you'll see many references to the New York State Athletic Commission, its counterparts in Los Angeles, Nevada, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And then, substantively, topically, uh, 
Boxing allows an exploration of masculinity, for example, uh, an essential component of gender identity, for example, and particularly masculinity as it intersects with constructions of race, particularly constructions of blackness, because as I point out, uh, one of the aspects of boxing that has been notable in the United States and perhaps, well, let's say in the United States, is the proliferation of black boxers at the highest level. Your listeners may be, viewers may be familiar with Muhammad Ali, but you know, he's not a one-off. I mean, there are people before him and people since. And part of it has to do with this idea of the white supremacists, which is sort of hard to imagine. That's why you have to study history because things change. Because a century or more ago, let's say 125 years ago, the idea of the white supremacists is that uh, black men were not real men. That because uh, real men do not quote allow themselves unquote to be enslaved, not allow themselves quote unquote to be subjected to third class citizenship, and so that then helps to justify the persecution because they're not real men anyway. And then alternatively, it helps to imbue many black men with this idea that they have to show that they're real men, <laughs> which leads them into the boxing ring, whereby they begin to beat up on these men defined as white, sometimes even killing them in the ring, in a naked form of revenge which then in turn leads to a search for a so-called great white hope, which you may recall is the subject of a movie and a well-known play dealing with a black boxer, Jack Johnson, who was the heavyweight boxing champion about 110 years ago. And what's interesting about the search for a great white hope, which is revealing, is that it wasn't so much a search for a great white hope, it was a search for a great anti-black hope. <laughs> because they were searching for a great white hope in China. Now, you know, most of the people in China are Chinese. Yeah. It would be hard to def define them as, quote, white, unquote. They're not, I mean, they're not a, as you used to say in London, they're not a pure European ancestry. <laughs> so it was basically just, to find somebody to put these Negroes in their place. Search for uh, the great anti-black hope. And then of course, there's um, the Jewish question, which is part of this book as well, because before the, the grand transition in the United States post 1945, that process, which I alluded to a moment or two ago, which leads to <clears throat> a retreat of US apartheid, which has the spinoff effect of causing a diminishing of anti-Semitism. So before that period, you had a number of uh, great Jewish boxers as well. And then there's a the question of organized crime, which is a subject that I find endlessly fascinating. Uh, I've done a couple of books about the film industry, which deal with organized crime, because uh, I don't think you can really begin to understand the political economy of capitalism, at least as it operates in this country, without understanding organized crime. Um, and crime families, as they're called, which proliferated in boxing in particular, that's one of the reasons the sport was so corrupt, was because of the proliferation of organized crime families. And so you put all of these topics together, masculinity, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, organized crime, you come up with the book, Bittersweet Science. Indeed, uh, and it is quite a fascinating read. I mean, obviously in Britain, we, uh, you know, like uh, there was a, the east end of, of London was a, a hotbed of, uh, you know, notable Jewish boxers who came out of the, you know, the impoverished Jewish communities there and, and contemporarily Gypsy Roma traveler communities have produced some of the most notable boxers in Britain. Of course, the is, uh, Muslim communities here, obviously in the United States, black boxers have, you know, risen to the top. I, one of the things I did want to ask about the sport, you know, for many people, it does represent a kind of um, a liberation story, or at least, a, you know, as you kind of touched on in your previous answer, this, you know, this, this means of redress of certain historical uh, dispossessions. And I was wondering, you know, what, 
you know, were, were there some of those stories, the stories of like particular boxers that really struck you as, you know, as kind of ins- inspiring stories, but also stories that were quite troubling in, in relation to, you know, ultimately these structures behind the scenes, you know, like, uh, whereas it might feel like a personal triumph for a certain sort of boxer, obviously there are ways to, uh, you know, there are ways to disempower even the most empowered figures in society, particularly people like Jack Johnson, who threatened, uh, you know, power order whole laws brought in entirely in relation to him. You know, I was just wondering, you know, were there a lot of stories, were there in the research, was there anything that really jumped out at you as a, as a particularly striking story that you saw in relation to this empowerment, disempowerment dynamic that boxing sometimes, um, you know, brings to the fore? Well, I think in particular of a notorious episode in boxing that's quite illustrative. It really deserves more attention. And I would recommend researchers and writers to this ch- chapter. And that is, I believe it's 1962, when Emil Griffith, a black boxer with roots in the U.S. Virgin Islands, formerly the Danish Virgin Islands, uh, who in New York City executes in the ring Benny Pare, who is a boxer, black boxer of Cuban extraction, because one of the, the igniting factors was that the Benny had been accusing Emil of being gay, which actually happened to be true, but it was considered to be defaming and an insult. And so Griffith systematically executes him in the ring. He kills him in the ring. It, it, it's, it's, it's quite a remarkable story. I'm surprised it hasn't received much more attention, particularly nowadays. Um, then, of course, the, there are the stories that uh, your listeners may be familiar with, your viewers may be familiar with. You mentioned Jack Johnson, subject of the play and movie The Great White Hope. Um, who then is chased out of the United States on spurious grounds. He engages in solidarity with the Mexican revolutionaries, 1910 to 1920. Uh, He spends time in Barcelona, his favorite city. He spends time in pre-revolutionary Russia. But finally, after returning to Mexico, there's regime change and he has to face the music. He's jailed in the United States. But what's interesting, he, he continues to travel. And as I point out in the book, I think he underestimates, well, this is not unusual, he underestimates the rise of fascism uh, in Germany. Now, Jack Johnson was an intelligent man, but he was not alone in underestimating the rise of fascism. And then uh, there's Joe Lewis, another heavyweight boxing champion, who is much more so than any other boxer of that of such prominence before since was really close to the organized left before the Red Scare, um, up to and including the US Communist Party. And what happens is that as he's retiring, the Red Scare is beginning, and he tries to then move into the economic aspect of boxing as television becomes a household item, you know, there's boxing matches two or three times a week. And so it's very lucrative with advertising for beer and razor blades, et cetera. And what happens is that he engages in an alliance with organized crime <laughs> because that they basically control the sport. He barely escapes jail uh, as a result. He loses quite a bit of money and towards the end of his life, what happens is he's virtually penniless. He becomes a, a greeter. I don't, I don't know if you have Walmarts in, in, in UK, but in Walmarts in, in the US, you have, uh, they, they hire greeters. So somebody who stands at the door and as, as the patron, the customer walks in, they say, welcome to Walmart. And, you know, it's a very low paying job. He becomes a greeter at a Las, at his Las Vegas casinos as sort of a spectacle. I'm sure if there had been selfies, then people would be snapping selfies with him. It's a very sad story. And once again, it, it really needs to be, somebody needs to make a movie out of that. Very poignant, uh, very poignant tale. And of course, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, uh, there's so many rich threads within uh, Bittersweet Science that I heartily recommend. Uh, anyone read? Uh, those are the questions I, I have for you, Professor Horn. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
Professor Gerald Horn is the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse and Bittersweet Science, which are available from Burley Fisher Books. Uh, Professor Horn, thank you again uh, for your time. Mm-hmm.